Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. I am Amy Gunn, and I am here with Liz Lenevy, Erica Slater, Megan Crow, and Elizabeth McNulty. Hello, ladies. Hey. Hi. You may recall that a couple of episodes ago, we talked about damages, the non-economic sort, such as pain and suffering, loss of consortium, and those types of things. We are following up today to talk about economic damages, which is really the other piece of the pie where we present to a jury all the harms that have happened to our clients. Economic damages are largely defined by medical bills, lost wages, lost earning capacity, both in the past and in the future. And they are truly numbers and quantitative analysis of a damage or an injury to our client. Medical bills obviously are what have been incurred for the injuries, again, both from the date of that negligence, the date of that injury, to the date of the trial, and then in the future, if that's part of the evidence. Lost wages, very similar. If the client is not able to work or has suffered any type of loss in their earning capacity, that is a number that can be placed in front of the jury for the jury to consider compensating our clients for. And over the years, there have been many examples of economic loss, but generally they fall into these two big categories of lost wages and medical bills. So what I want to start with, Erica, is what advice would you give to someone who is trying to look at a medical expense and turn that into a submissible piece of evidence to a jury? Well, the first thing to think about is whatever your state's rules are about admitting that evidence. In Missouri, we have to have a business records affidavit. And in medical malpractice cases, there are special rules for filing those business record affidavits prior to trial. And it's a deadline. And if you miss it 30 days before trial, you're going to have some proof issues for submitting those medical bills and other records that you may enter under a business record affidavit. It's very difficult sometimes to get accurate copies or the right copies of bills. You obviously want itemized statements. You're not looking at the same thing that the patient and your client looks at. So those documents are going to be hard evidence in your case. That evidence is often backing up a demonstrative exhibit, but you have to have your billing documents with affidavit if required in order early on in the case so you're not scrambling at the end to be able to admit them as evidence and as support for how you present your economic damages in the form of medical bills to the jury. So that's going to be your support for a chart. You're probably not going to be showing the jury the actual documents, but they must be in line to support that evidence. And I have never had a case where the defense attorney is not absolutely hold your feet to the fire to make sure that evidence is entered properly to the extent that sometimes you even need a deposition or they will force a deposition to prove up those medical bills and what they were charged for or the fact that they are business records of a practice. 
Megan, have you had a situation where you've taken a medical bill with that affidavit and had to physically get it in front of a jury? And how have you handled that? Yes. So I had this happen to me in a recent trial that I did. And what happened was that all of the medical billing records and medical records themselves were exchanged in discovery. We provided authorizations, uh, defense counsel obtained the medical records and billing records themselves. And then instead of presenting the billing records and medical records in those forms to the jury, what we did was come together and draft a joint stipulation of all of the medical costs. And we submitted to the court the joint stipulation of cost that was a very short half-page bullet-pointed list of the cost and the total. So the jury didn't have to deal with cumbersome billing records and medical records. They just had a one-page document that said this is the total. And that actually became what your evidence was, right? Right. And I've done that before too, Megan, where there's really not that much debate about what the cost of the medical care is. You don't want to submit hundreds of pages, line items to a jury. And oftentimes you can get the cooperation of defense counsel and say the total amount of medical costs or expenses in this case is fill in the blank. And what's great about that is you then turn that into you've got a whiteboard or you've got a PowerPoint or however you want to actually present that number to the jury and you can replicate it in that way. And the jury sees that number because what is important oftentimes about economic loss as opposed to the non-economic loss is its numbers on a piece of paper, on a PowerPoint, on a whiteboard, however you present it. And I always, always watch the jury when an economic number is going up, whether it's lost wages, medical bills, a life care plan we'll talk about in a minute, and see if they're writing it down. Because if they're writing it down, you kind of get excited, like, okay, they believe this, they're going to write it down, because then they're hopefully going to carry that into the jury room with them and then carry that onto the verdict form. So that's why the actual exhibits and figuring out and making sure you can create a submissible piece of evidence on a medical bill is important. And Erica, as you point out, don't take it for granted. Because the defense, rightfully so, is going to hold your feet to the fire because they're going to do everything they can not to have any submissible economic loss because they, they know the power of it. Is it a good thing to put the full number in front? Because I think a lot of jurors have a preconceived notion that this individual person probably didn't pay that much. Most people have insurance or some kind of government assistance that pays a good portion of that. So is that number actually representative of the costs that they paid. Very good point. And the answer is everyone knows that somebody most likely has insurance coverage or government benefits. And is that $100,000 medical bill really something that the plaintiff had to pay? And this is a struggle that's been going on for years and years and years. And it leads to a strategy question. Because in Missouri and in a lot of states, Laws have been passed that restrict what numbers can be put in front of the jury in terms of medical expenses. Currently in Missouri, and we've gone back and forth for over 10 years on this issue, the law intended to say that we can only submit the amount that was actually paid. And so if you have a $100,000 hospital bill, 
but you've got private insurance coverage, and that private insurance coverage paid only $30,000 to satisfy that bill, then all you should really get to present to the jury is that $30,000, because after all, that's the truth of it. And we can talk about collateral source, which the principle of collateral source is that as a plaintiff, if I am harmed to the tune of $100,000 and just was lucky enough to have insurance, the defendant should not get the benefit of me having insurance, whether it's private or government benefits or what have you. The legislature, at least in Missouri, tried to get around the collateral source rule by saying something like, this does not affect the collateral source rule, (laughs) but it obviously does. The jury also gets instructed by the judge that the jury cannot take any insurance coverage into account, whether it's liability insurance, if you have a motor vehicle accident, or health insurance, the jury cannot take insurance into account. So they're really not supposed to. Because this is very complicated, and you can tell from me trying to explain it, it's very complicated, a lot of the analysis on economic loss and medical bills in particular comes to, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Because currently in Missouri, you can ask the jury for two numbers, the amount that was actually paid, but also really still the amount that was charged. So now the jury sees $100,000 was charged, but $30,000 was paid. What should they do? And I have always worried that the jury's going to look at me like, what are you trying to pull, lady? I mean, 100000 was charged, but only thirty was paid? Why would I give you 100 And you really can't explain. Although, as a plaintiff, I do have the right to waive that insurance issue. I can say my client has insurance. The full extent, however, of this injury is reflected in the $100,000 charge. And I've always believed that if the jury is with you on the liability and on the causation, they're going to give you what you want. If they truly believe in your case, they're going to trust you enough to know what you're asking for is legitimate. But Erica, tell me a little bit about the strategy that you undertake to make that decision about whether to submit any medical bills. I think it has a lot to do actually with weighing the egregiousness of the liability and what happened in relation to what the medical bills may have been. Say it's a case where someone was injured as a baby. They may, at the time of trial, have bills that are over a million dollars easily. And that may even be the amount paid, depending on how severe the injury is. And in that type of situation, you'd also have future damages and anticipated medical costs. Those large numbers you really can't walk away from as far as presenting them to the jury because they are such substantial numbers that a jury can really dig into as tangible costs as opposed to non-tangible, non-economic damages. But if you have a maybe a motor vehicle accident where, you know, somebody had a small surgery or minimal conservative treatment for their injuries, the amount paid on their bills might be, you know, fifteen, twenty, thirty thousand dollars. If you tell me that a drunk driver hit them head on and they were just lucky enough not to be, you know, rendered a quadriplegic, I'm not going to submit the bills in that case because the liability is so egregious. I wouldn't want a jury to not punish, if you will, the defendant for how they injured our client by 
maybe one or two or three of the jurors on that panel saying, yeah, 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 but hey, let's give them $10,000 for their medical bills and, you know, that's the risk we all take. You don't want it to be an anchor. Right. Exactly. And that has been a longstanding discussion in plaintiffs and defense worlds as far as strategy because defendants have the option sometimes to present those bills, but if you don't claim them then the defendant shouldn't have the option to present them almost as an anchor. So it can be contentious because you kind of remove a defense if you don't submit bills in a case where a defendant might want to say to the jury, yes, we know this happened, but accidents happen. Go ahead and give them their medical bills or something to that effect. Elizabeth, have you found a similar analysis undertaken in the cases that you guys have? Yeah, I would say that it's pretty often that we don't submit on medical bills, and I would also say that we usually don't submit on lost wages either just because the potential risk is too great because it will anchor the jury to give just too low of a number for the damages that we think that the case is worth. And I think that also, as far as lost wages goes, that kind of opens the door. And as far as discovery goes, to kind of some intrusive discovery, in my opinion, when you want to seek lost wages because then they get employment records, tax records, and that can just be a lot for a client. And I don't want to put my client in that position to have to kind of give over all that information and open that door. So in most cases, I'd say that we don't submit on either of those things. I agree with the lost wage for sure, particularly for that reason, Elizabeth, because it allows the defendant to dive into the employment file and not only the rate of earnings, but you can make an argument that any of the performance evaluations could potentially be relevant to determine whether that's why the client was making money or not making money or anticipated to make more money in the future and those types of things. So it really is something you have to discuss with your client. And my perspective is if the number's high enough, then I'll put my client through it. Right. So if my client is rendered permanently disabled from working and was making, you know, high six figures, yeah, we're going to pursue that. We're going to say, look, this is important, and those numbers are going to be significant enough to where they won't anchor the verdict. And in fact, if you can put together economic loss of several million dollars, then you can use that. And I've done this often in closing argument. You know, it's sometimes hard to say what a non-economic award should be. But then you could say, what I can tell you is that the $5 million in economic loss that you've seen with your own eyes based on these exhibits and this testimony is a drop in the bucket for what the actual non-economic pain and suffering for the case can be. So in that case, it can be a wonderful springboard as well. And one of the biggest areas of economic loss that is pursued, particularly in the catastrophic cases, are life care plans. So Liz, I know you're working with a number of cases with life care plans. Can you give us an idea of what those are and how you present that evidence? Sure. So life care plans are basically reports created by life care planners. And and those folks can sometimes be physicians. Sometimes they can be nurses who are certified in life care planning. But the specific goal of the life care plan is to examine the plaintiff, look through the plaintiff's medical records and make a determination of what exactly the plaintiff's injuries are and what type of care and how much in terms of cost for that medical care that plaintiff is going to need for the rest of his or her 
life. And so what ends up happening typically in our catastrophic injury cases is we will hire a life care planner to come in, examine the plaintiff, and generate a report to give an opinion that the plaintiff is going to need you know, $10 million, $20 million for the rest of their life in order to make sure that they have sufficient care. Life care planners are not specific to litigation. You can have a life care planner, a case manager for an injured person just to help create that report so that individuals, physicians know what kind of care they're going to need. They can sort of plan economically how they're going to pay for that care. But in litigation, what we use it as is our evidence to the jury of in order for this plaintiff to be fully compensated, not only for their past damages, but for everything that they're going to experience in the future. Because you have to remember, we can't come back 10, 15 years later and say, hey, jury, you didn't award enough money at that time. We need more. We have to plan for that. So that's what our life care planner does. On the flip side, defense attorneys, they hire their own life care planners and they come in and they say, you know, these are the injuries I think the plaintiff has and and I think this is what the appropriate cost is. And more often than not, what will happen is the defense life care plan will be a lower amount. I think that's a safe bet. <laughs> yeah, I put money on it. But what I've been experiencing with some of these life care planning reports and as far as damages in cases goes is different experts that are now coming in to try to even further reduce the life care plan. So let me see if I understand. You've got plaintiffs on behalf of the injured party hire a life care plan or someone who is skilled and trained in understanding what care will be needed in the future and what it will cost. And we present that as an economic loss for the future. Then the job of the defense is to try to convince the jury that there's no one was injured, it was no one's fault, and even if any of those things is true, no one's really hurt or it's not going to cost any money to take care of the hurt person. So part of that defense is to hire people who then look at the life care plan that the plaintiff has put together and say what? That it's not a legitimate charge? So what I typically see in defense life care plans is they will say they're not going to need this amount of care. They're not going to need to see this particular specialist. They're not going to need this many imaging sessions per year. They're not going to need this much physical therapy or this specific equipment. Or sometimes we'll come in and say, you know, you can get this particular drug for cheaper. I I just read through a, a life care planner's deposition that I defended not too long ago where the defense attorney went through good RX and pulled up all the cheapest pharmacies. And of course, my response to that is, so you're asking my client to drive around all over town to find the cheapest drug at every single location. I can't imagine that that's a reasonable argument to make in front of a jury, but it is a point that they tried to make with my life care planner and, and she handled it very deftly. But that's what they're coming in to do is to just reduce what our expert has said is going to be reasonable. And this is not, you know, exorbitant care. This is not asking for the most cutting edge technology for these people. It's just what is reasonable health care that the plaintiff is going to need in order to have an acceptable standard of life. So why do you think the defendants work so hard to poke holes in life care plans or hire experts who will not only say the care suggested isn't really necessary, but it's much cheaper than what our life care plan suggests. Who else do they hire to try to poke holes? So the first type of expert that I have had to depose was someone, I'm not entirely sure what his title is, but his opinion was on the reasonable 
costs of healthcare. Anyone listening to this in the United States knows that our healthcare costs are sort of all over the place sometimes. And without a standard set amount, I mean, hospitals can vary, regions can vary. And so what he did was he came in and said, you know, this is what a reasonable healthcare cost is, what a reasonable neurologist costs in this area or, you know, this type of therapy. I'm taking the average. I pushed him on, you know, where are you getting these numbers? Is this based on Medicare and Medicaid numbers? Because if you do this type of work, you know that Medicare and Medicaid can often negotiate for lower costs than if you're with a private insurer. And additionally, when you are looking at it from an economic standpoint like that, the issue that I took with this particular expert was that he looked at through a pure lens of economics of, you know, you should go with the most reasonable cost neurologist. I'm defending a critically ill child. I'm assuming her mother doesn't want the most reasonable cost neurologist. Her mother wants the best neurologist for her child, just as any parent would want. So that's where we sort of fell apart. The second type of expert that often comes up is financial planners that come in to provide present value calculations. And they are there to provide a discount rate, saying given the rate of inflation, a dollar today is not going to be the same worth of a dollar 10 years from now, a dollar 20 years from now. And if you invest it properly, then you don't actually need $5 million in 2021, because if you invest it properly, that will actually be worth eight, $9 million in 2031, or, or however that math works that I did not go to school for. It's a good rate of return. Yeah. (laughs) So what I think is interesting, though, and what I have learned through preparing for this particular expert's deposition is that in the discount rate, you really have to be careful about what is the percent return rate they are using. Because if it's a defense expert, they're going to try to come up with the highest discount rate possible, right? Because that's what reduces the present value. I do want to point out quickly a 2020 decision that came down out of the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals. It was a district court case in Oklahoma, a baby injury case, FTCA, which is why I was in district court. For those of you who don't know, FTCA is Federal Torts Claims Act. It basically means if you're suing some sort of federally run clinic or federally run hospital. But in this particular case, which is Stokes versus United States, the court found that the discount rate that they have to use or that should be applied in cases is not what is necessarily the best or the riskiest investment that may necessarily have the best return rate, because obviously, you know, just trying to boil this down, higher risk means higher reward. But you really have to use what is the safest investment rate. And you have to assume that the plaintiff isn't going to want to take this big risk. So sorry, defendant, you don't get to apply this huge risky return rate. You have to use what is a safe rate. So as far as I know, it has not been applied outside of the Tenth Circuit. But I think that's a very important decision to be aware of if you are a plaintiff's attorney, especially if you're doing an FTCA case. Finally, the last type of expert I want to touch base on very quickly is life expectancy. Because what we end up fighting about in these life care plans is how long the plaintiff is going to live. Obviously, the longer the plaintiff lives, the more care that plaintiff is going to need. And so if you can convince a jury that this plaintiff's going to die 10 years earlier, that can be a way to shave off a couple million dollars off of the verdict. Recently, I think it was a Washington Post article, but there was an article talking about how race and gender can be taken into life expectancy, as well as lost wages. 
But that's something I think we should also consider is if you are a plaintiff's attorney representing a person of color and a defense experts coming in and saying, hey, we get to take 10 years off of your client's life care plan because they're black, not white. I think it's an example of racism within our system that we should be able to address, we should be aware of. And if someone is using race to try to reduce someone's life care plan massively, then that's something that we can try to attack in our rebuttal of that. This discussion about medical bills and talking about life care plans always feels kind of icky because the approach that you see taken at trial time and time again is defendants are saying, you know, we didn't mess up. And it's usually in regard to children. We didn't mess up badly and we didn't cause these problems this child is having. But if we did, the child is so injured that they are going to pass away earlier than their life expectancy or what you say their life expectancy is. So I think it's a risky argument and can really be turned against defendants. I think one of the biggest points of all those experts that, you know, the job is to really just cut down, cut down, cut down the damages, cut down the life care plan is twofold, to intimidate the clients into thinking that the case isn't worth what he or she or we have let them know, and also to drive a settlement, really, because I'm with you on that. I can't wait. Liz, in the case that you're discussing, I can't wait for the trial of that case where we get those folks on the stand and they have to admit really their entire purpose and why they've made thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars for working on the case was to take money away from this disabled child. You could go so far as like, I struggle with the morality of that, but you know, I'm past that, right? Because it's it's advocacy. So I get that. But I really do, am having a hard time understanding what that looks like at trial and how obtuse that could be or that evidence could be and how much fun it will likely be for us to engage in the cross-examination of those experts. And then the flip side is defendants giving the impression that plaintiffs are looking to hit the lottery or you know they're going to get all this money. And if they don't make it, you know, that long or as long as plaintiff's attorneys say they will, then it's just a windfall. So that's kind of the perspective from both sides that each side probably thinks is to their advantage. The way I look at it is, look, the better health care that this individual can afford, the longer their life will be, the higher quality of their life will be. And, and anyone who tries to convince me that money doesn't make a difference on what type of care, health care you can receive in this country, I don't believe them. You're lying to me. That's a great point. I feel much better about that argument. How's that? I'm wearing the white hat <laughs> <Yeah>. on it. <laughs> I have a question about lost future wages. Do you do it? How often do you do it? It seems to me to be a really complex issue to try and calculate lost future wages. And if you do it, do you have to have an expert? And when does it become a cost-benefit analysis of paying for that expert to testify to it as opposed to what the value of presenting that evidence to a jury will be? I think it depends on what the number is going to look like. I oftentimes consult an economist who can take a look at the tax returns and the schedules and the income and the W-2s and all those things to try to understand what that number is going to be. And if that number is significant enough, then that expert will pay for him or herself pretty easily because economists, it really is a finite number of documents that can be reviewed in a pretty formulaic so to speak, analysis. 
and they develop a report and you have it. And they also have to do what we call reduce to present value. So any future cost needs to be reduced to present money. And, and Liz was talking about that a little bit earlier with the life care plan as well. So that number is going to go down from what today's value is. But again, it's going to depend on how big that number is. Because if I can get into the high six figures, into the millions, I'm going to go for it. Because juries, again, they like hard numbers and they're going to write it down. And also, if you are presenting lost wages, especially of a high earner, you hope that that person was well regarded at their job as well. And you often may be deposing an employer who can confirm things like salary and benefits, and you can take those numbers and your client can testify what their plans were as far as how long they would have worked if you know, they weren't rendered paraplegic or something like that. So the evidence can come in that way as well, which is a little bit looser way to introduce that evidence than with an economist. And it's possible, if I'm remembering correctly, because it's been a number of years since I've done the lost wage part of it, because oftentimes it's just not that significant. But it's possible to have your client testify about his or her own tax records and income records and without an expert have that evidence submitted through your client's testimony as to how much he or she made. And let's say they were out of work for a year and a half. They made $35,000 a year for a total of fill in the blank. That evidence can come in that way as well. Another particular case that I'm thinking of is where we had a very young client, young man with a young family, and he was set to inherit a family business. So he wasn't necessarily raking in money being so young, but the plan was for his dad to retire and to give a pretty successful business that had recently expanded. And so what we did in that particular case was we pulled the business records and we gave that to our economists to say, you know, if the business had done this well for the past 10 years, can you reasonably say how the business would have continued to progress? And then that would have been income for our client, which now his family has lost out on. And then that's how we, in that particular wrongful death case, laid the foundation for those economic damages. And just in terms of life expectancy and work life, there are government tables that most people refer to and that the judge can take judicial notice of. If you're in a case and you don't have experts or you don't have physicians who can pontificate on life expectancy, then you can take a person and find their, you know, their date of birth and their race and their gender and there are government life tables that'll say the person's average age upon death is fill in the blank. There are also work life tables. You know, you get into this situation if you're pursuing a lost wage claim and the person's permanently disabled, oh, I would have worked until I was 82. Well, it's really evidence of that. I mean, the client can testify about it. Family members can testify about it. But if there's no real good evidence about it because the person is deceased, then you can also look to work-life tables and what a particular person is expected to work. And that's a good way to have that evidence admissible as well. So ladies, I think we've had a really good discussion today about economic loss. I hope we've been able to provide some information to our listeners about not only what economic loss is, but how to get it admissible if you want to, and then also strategically whether you even want to admit it. So please join us at our next episode. We drop every Wednesday. 
And if you have any comments or questions, please feel free to email us at comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law. Thank you. See you next time. Amy, Liz, Mary, Erica, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you at comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law. And if you love Heels in the Courtroom, check out the other legal podcasts in the Simon Law Firm Library. John Simon's The Jury Is Out podcast focuses on lifelong learning to elevate your practice and dive into the legal drama behind America's first medical malpractice case against opioid overprescription in Results Don't Lie. Subscribe today. Subscribe today.